The National Coalition of Black Meeting Professionals, founded in 1983, is the preeminent nonprofit organization in educating African American association executives and meeting planners in all aspects of the meeting planning profession. For more information on membership and supporting the efforts of the National Coalition of Black Meeting Professionals, please visit ncbmp.com. That's ncbmp.com. Welcome to SPIN. I'm Derek Johnson. The magnification of inequality and injustice towards the Black community inspired LGBT MPA to foster conversations around the significance and impact within the meetings and events industry. We bring you Spinoff, an inspirational series dedicated to spotlighting the thoughts of our community's most compelling leaders around important topics. Today, we're joined by Bill Reed, Chief Event Strategy Officer for the American Society of Hematology. And we'll take his pulse on the inequality in our world and discuss the opportunities that can be found within the meetings and events industry to foster global change. Bill, welcome to Spinoff. Well, thank you, Derek. It's great to be here with you. Alrighty, Bill, let's start here. Everyone has a story. What's the Cliff Notes version of yours? Yeah, what's my story? <laughs> now, there's a question I've been asked a million times. <laughs> you know, my story is a simple one. I'm just an ordinary person trying to do my best out there in the world like everyone else, I think. So I don't know that there is a story there um, beyond uh, what you see is what you get. So what about your professional world? Will you give me a description of what you do? Sure, absolutely. So professionally, I am the Chief Event Strategy Officer for the American Society of Hematology. And we're a global society focused upon um, helping hematologists conquer blood disease worldwide. And blood diseases runs, um, is a broad range of diseases that uh, span blood cancers, if you will, so things that we've probably heard of before, leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, to blood disorders like anemias, sickle cell disease, thalassemias, um, bleeding and clotting issues, hemophilia. So one of the things that I love about my role is um, no two days are the same, and we are a large umbrella organization focused on not just one disease, but many different uh, disease states. So that uh, lends itself to a mix and diversity of work. Um, my role with our meetings portfolio ranges from our largest meeting, which is an annual meeting, very global in nature, um, that typically on an ordinary year would attract 30,000 people at a face-to-face -face event. And then we have a complete portfolio of uh, smaller clinically focused meetings, uh, research and scientific focused meetings, as well as uh, a plethora of governance type meetings um, at our ASH headquarters. Thanks, Bill. So how has your organization been impacted by coronavirus? It's a great question, and that's evolving every single day, actually. 
So during COVID, which is an infectious disease, so not necessarily in our lane, so to speak. Um, but one of the things that has emerged from COVID are the um, hematologic implications of uh, a patient who um, tests positive for COVID and they were previously diagnosed with a hematologic disorder. So for instance, someone who may be taking chemotherapy for a blood cancer suddenly is positive for COVID, their care treatment plan needs to change because by design, if they're um, receiving chemotherapy, that's designed to um, impede their immune system and it's weakened already. So we can't continue in the treatment of that. We've also learned that part of what we're discovering about COVID relates to the blood plasma when someone tests positive for COVID, recovers, and they have um, immunity of some length uh, in their bloodstream. So how can we harvest that um, convalescent blood plasma to provide it to others who have either recently tested positive to help them fight or in a um, prophylactic way to prevent someone from getting COVID. Additionally, we've discovered um, through the collection of data that many patients that come into the emergency room with COVID, like anyone who's entering the emergency room, they will typically be infused with large amounts of um, blood thinners um, that will help them during their stay in the emergency room for whatever the reason is. This is part of standard operating procedure, if you will. But in spite of that, we're seeing coagulopathies develop in these patients and a large number of them where they are experiencing blood clot issues. And that coagulation um, has the potential to migrate into a situation where they're experiencing stroke or other, um, uh, other opportunities that make their recovery even more difficult. So while COVID in of itself is not in the hematology lane per se, there are implications um, for our constituency as they're consulting with um, patients and their physician teams. Um, there are implications to it. And because it's such a novel virus, there aren't um, scientific and peer-reviewed uh, data-based guidelines in place on how you treat patients in these situations. So it's changed our organization in that we've had to respond to member needs in a very fast moving environment. And one of the things that I love about it actually, Derek, is that it gives me someone without a medical background, an opportunity to contribute to a healthcare crisis that I might not have had if I weren't at ASH. So amongst all the things that we can draw inspiration from right now, 
that's one of the many opportunities I've been given. That's amazing, Bill. I believe there's nothing greater than helping impact people's lives and giving back to underserved communities. But speaking of underserved, um, COVID-19 has been known to be more of a concern for those of marginalized communities. Have you found a direct correlation between the virus and um, communities of uh, color? Yeah, and again, I'm not a um, medically trained medical practitioner. (laughs) I I do have two ears that work really well and I pay attention to lots of conversations. Um, You know, certainly the most prevalent one that hopefully everyone is aware of is the um, disproportionate impact on the same underserved communities. So the African-American population has experienced um, impacts with COVID at a disproportionate rate to others. So for me, the intersection of the Black Lives Matter movement, if you wanna call it that, um, with COVID um, lands squarely right there. And there certainly are other intersections, but that's the one that um, calls out for us to examine why is it that it's impacting that community more? Why is it that we have such healthcare disparities overall, even outside of COVID? Um, but more importantly, what are we going to do to level the playing field? So let's stick on this topic for a moment. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Why do you believe today it's more transparent in communities uh, than before, it being racial injustice and um, inequality? Uh, I'm grateful. This is, may sound like a strange thing to be grateful for at a time like this. I'm grateful for the existence of video. I'm grateful that the technology allows everyone with a smartphone to document what's really happening. I think what makes this different is you cannot watch the video of the tragic death of George Floyd and not be clear on what caused that situation. You can watch it for eight minutes and 46 seconds, you can watch it. And it doesn't leave that aspect up for debate, what caused his death. And for me, I think what makes this different is that proof. In past situations, you know, we've all participated in the dialogue of this person looking at it from that lens or that person defending um, what others may deem as indefensible action. There's a lot of um, hyperbole involved. There's a lot of assumption, not a lot of facts, but when you're watching a video 
It's all facts. It's all right there. I think that's why it's different. So what's your take on the statements, Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter? You know, um, I don't know if everyone listening to this will like this answer, but I'm going to answer for me. For me, the debate between All Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter does nothing but create divisive reactions and in my mind distracts us from the core issue. I think it's a very contemporary debate over the label, the soundbite that works really well for social media, but it worries me that we're choosing to discuss the slogan and perhaps rather we really should be investing energy in the topics underneath the surface. And in many ways, the statement, both statements, keep us focused on skin color, which is the problem we're trying to solve to begin with, right? right. So if we think about that, the labels in of itself are keeping us from spending more time discussing and confronting things like inequality, discrimination, I will say it, white privilege, and aspects that not everyone understands the notion that some of us get a head start and some of us play catch up for most or all of their life. If we don't make advancements on those aspects, neither of those two labels really matters. So I think it's, um, I understand why we're having the debate between the two. I think um, people are interpreting from their lens what it really means. You know, when someone says Black Lives Matter, clearly there's no word only in that statement. So they're not saying only Black Lives Matter. And people who focus upon all lives matter may be affirming that yes, all lives do matter. However, they may be discounting that the important thing right now is that in addition to all lives matter, that right now, maybe we need more focus on black lives to balance things out a little bit. So I'm pretty strong in my opinion. I know not everyone would agree with my viewpoint on that, and that's okay, that's part of the discussion. But for me, it's a matter of where are we spending our time focus? Are we on the surface, the skin color, or are we really courageous enough to dig down underneath it? Bill, I very much appreciate uh, those thoughts and believe that our individuality and uniqueness is key to evolving our world. Um, but unfortunately, currently, those with um, conflicting um, mindsets are looked at negatively as opposed to 
us opening our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to understanding um, the other side of the opinion that we may have. Um, and I think the world would be a much stronger place if we were to be more empathetic towards people with differing views. Yeah. And I think the leadership that we need now is the leadership, and I'm not talking about elected leadership here, although one could easily, (laughs) but my focus is on, we're not going to control that situation. But what we can control is everyone who's a leader, whether it's a leader in your neighborhood, a leader in your workplace, a leader in your profession, a leader um, in your geographic area. What we have to do is create safe spaces for crucial conversations to be had. And you are absolutely right, Derek. These conversations can get heated in a hurry, even with everyone having the best of intentions. So I think we're more successful when we have those conversations within our sphere of influence where there is a, some level of trust already in existence. And we set the ground rules that even well-intentioned people may say something really stupid now and again, right? But saying what is genuine what having that honest dialogue is what's going to move us forward. We may not like it in the moment. It may be very uncomfortable for us, but like any relationship, you have to have those conversations, don't you? To take the uh, level of trust to a whole new level. And there's an awful lot of reasons for many people to distrust each other right? Um, There's, call it what it is, we all have a lot of baggage on this topic. Are we willing to open up the suitcase, show everyone who we are, and admit, I need to change some things. I want to work on some things. None of us is perfect, or we wouldn't be human beings, right? But if we can listen to each other and have the courage to say with authenticity how we're thinking, um, good will come of this. But again, we may not like it in the short term. It may hurt our feelings, but we have to move past that and stay open and not close that door. Because if you close that door, you've missed the opportunity. So authentic conversations and being comfortable in the uncomfortable um, may be the solutions to our evolution. Speaking of um, injustice and um, inequality, have you seen that represented in the meetings and events industry? I think um, any community has a... uh, a wide, vast array of um, people, opinions, actions. So it's really hard to say any group of people 
are immune to this. Any group of people have it perfect. Um, so I think there are um, certainly examples that we all have to be accountable for where we could do better. And I think that's what we need to focus upon moving forward rather than pointing fingers or citing examples from the past. Because this is a great opportunity right now. I, I don't know in my lifetime that I've ever seen such a large pool of advocates and allies um, that have um, gathered in unison on a topic, but we have not yet discovered how to galvanize this groundswell. And the pattern of disjointed, again, non-political leadership is the same at other points in time in our history. And as a student of history, I'm watching and enjoying trying to predict which voices will be the ones that will unify the call to action, which ones have the best chances of spawning the next generation of advocates and allies that will carry this effort forward with sustained momentum, perhaps over decades. What I worry about is if we don't galvanize, we know, at least as a generalization in America, we can lose our focus on a particular topic as time goes on. This feels different, I hope it's different, that we will be vigilant and sustained um, because the solution is not going to happen overnight. It needs um, voices. And so when I look back at history, Derek, who I've been looking at more recently are people um, like Larry Kramer, who recently passed, um, Frank uh, Kameny, both of which were instrumental um, during the AIDS epidemic, but also with gay rights. I look back to examples like um, Norma Ray or Billie Jean King um, on movements related to labor rights and feminism. If we look at the Latinx community and their rights, someone in history like Cesar Chavez, and certainly for um, the African-American community and the civil rights movement, looking back at uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and many others. So for me, I wonder who's the modern day example or who are the collection of those voices that will lead us to action. There hasn't been a consistent voice emerging yet, but I think part of the initial steps is whose voice are we going to stand behind and echo that we can pass on to others? That's an uh, interesting analysis, Bill. And I find a lot of parallelism between the 
LGBT plus community and the black community. I'm coming from personal experience, the struggles, the discrimination, um, they're all intertwined. Um, and when you think of marginalized communities as a whole, the same principles, the same stories are being told through different eyes um, because people look different, because people act different, um, because people love differently. And um, when we open our eyes to the difference of communities and support one another and care for one another, then we support the humanitarian efforts in elevating our communities, I think, to become stronger and more impactful. And that's when true change occurs. Um, and back to your one of your original thoughts, um, the root of the concern is in the humane thoughts and actions that we have as individuals. And I'm not sure if it's going to take the aliens coming from above for humanity to come together, but um, hopefully it's soon. Even within the LGBT community, we have to accept and call it out. There are, um, there are members of the black community who demonstrate homophobia. There are members of the gay community that are racist or demonstrate racist behavior occasionally, right? So even within a community that theoretically should understand the notion of discriminatory thinking and actions is not appropriate, there too we have work to do. And I hope that we don't gloss over that aspect in the process. You know, we have great work to do um, on some of the more pressing issues, but at the end of the day, we have the opportunity to advance as humans, as you say, Derek, that um, we all have something to work on. Some of us have more to work on. So I don't think it's necessarily just limited to black white, to black police, right? Um, there's a lot of work to be done. Speaking of the work that can be done, we belong to a profession that has the ability to cultivate social and economic transformation within communities through the education and connections we facilitate as professionals. What can the meetings and events community do to support diversity, equity, and inclusion, marginalized communities, and that humanitarian effort that we're both speaking towards? Yeah, and I think it is multifaceted. There is so much that can be done. The question is, What's the priority and what's the pathway to make it happen? It can't all be done overnight. So I think as an example, on a long list of things that could be done, 
I think something as simple as the elimination of cronyism is an easy thing for organizations to address, but also individuals to address. And I want to tell you a little bit what I mean by that. Because sometimes people react to the term cronyism like, I, I, I'm, I don't do that. Well, we all do it to some degree, right? A lot of the change that needs to take place is systemic change. So within all of the industry organizations, if we look at the elimination of cronyism, what that might be, a very specific example is, is there a separation between the body of people that select who gets put in leadership roles within that organization from those that are already in those roles. So as an example, during my tenure on the board of PCMA, we made a bylaws change to ensure that structurally, systemically, no one on the existing active board with a vote would be in the position of voting upon who gets put onto that very board, right? So cronyism, if you didn't address the structure while individuals are professionals and it may not have happened, the structure didn't prevent it from happening. So someone who wanted to get a friend of theirs or someone that they had personal interaction with on the board they could. Now, certainly someone on the board can nominate a candidate, but I think it's an um, important step through um, that structural that the existing board can't bring more of themselves or their circle of friends onto the board. It's a completely independent body that makes those selections. And um, at the time, I don't know that we truly understood the impact of that structural change, but I think it's an important one and one that I'm proud of now looking back at it um, with hindsight. But on an individual level, for all of us in the meetings and events community, we too can eliminate cronyism. If we think about when we go to a conference, Derek, I think you and I both do this, and we um, also simultaneously work to not do it. Do we hang out with the same people that we already know? So do we hang out with our posse, or you know, do you hang out with two or three people that you feel very comfortable with? Or what are you doing to branch out of that circle away from what people often label as a click to um, introduce yourself to that person that you don't know whose background may be different than yours and make them feel comfortable in that community? I think back to when I was um, in my early stages of my career, I felt very comfortable going into a room of people I did not know and one by one building that network. 
But I have to recognize now more than ever, that experience could be very difficult for someone who's had different obstacles in their way to even get to that point, right? So how do we reach out to them, not someone else's job, how do I make it my job, everyone making it their job to reach out to that person that's standing in the corner at a networking reception with no one to talk to? And especially if they're from an underrepresented portion of the community, isn't it more important to do it now? So the elimination of cronyism is just one of a thousand issues. We have to figure out which is the first priority, get that done and move on to the second. And that starts with the individuals. So what's your thought around um, our responsibility as leaders to mentor individuals that may not be fully represented in the scale of leadership and that come from um, marginalized communities? Part of the solution is we need to give more opportunity to those that have not been given the opportunity. And, um, you know, once that engine starts, you know, it, when you watch in the media, the um, conversation about the number of black CEOs amongst the Fortune 500, I think the number is five out of 500. And, you know, many, and I'll say many um, Caucasians will say, well, they're aren't the candidates available in the pool? That's BS. If, um, if we're being honest, there are candidates there. There may be systemic reasons why they're not being selected, why they're not getting to the table to be selected. And we have to work harder to make sure that people have that opportunity um, to demonstrate what they're capable of. And we all have a responsibility to make sure that's happening to some degree. But I also think to your question on mentorship, right now, mentorship could be happening in so many different ways. I um, take my role as a, I'll call myself an elder person in the industry to <laughs> do whatever I can to help um, people in early stages of their career or mid-level stages of their career to advance. I was a recipient of that early in my career, throughout my career, um, but not everyone has that opportunity. So we have to think about that. But moreover, for someone like me, there's the opportunity to be mentored by someone who um, has not had the advantages I have had throughout my career to learn what is that? I, I need to understand that perspective if I can continue in a leadership role. That's not optional. So I have a colleague at our organization that um, who is mentoring me on the issues that I do not have direct experience on 
and that's um, energizing, it's revitalizing. Sometimes it makes me uncomfortable, right? Because we get comfortable in our patterns. But I think um, there are many opportunities for mentorship. And it's not the responsibility of the oppressed, the underserved, those that have um, perhaps had uh, felt discrimination to teach. But I think many are willing to share what they know in their perspective. So how have you evolved from this reverse mentorship? Um, I think I'm starting to understand the perspective better than I did before. I still have an awful lot of work to go because you don't learn about someone's life experience in, you know, 90 minutes. But I'm becoming aware of certain bias that I have. Look, there's no getting around it. I grew up in little old Rhode Island. Um, there was very little diversity. It was not until I went to Miami, go to college, had I ever met a Latino. Think about that. Do you think that some of my belief system that was formed up until age 18 doesn't exist inside of me? No, I have grown and evolved, expanded um, those beliefs, thankfully, through my career has taken me to places where I've had the um, luxury of interacting with others whose backgrounds are different than mine. I feel so, so lucky that um, my circle is very diverse because they have something to teach me. And how I'm changing as a leader is if I, I, I'm thinking about it in concentric circles, Derek. And at the center of the concentric circle is me. And that my first job is I've got to work on me and understand um, what others' experiences are, how they may come to the table and express their viewpoints on a topic. Um, even when we're agreeing, you can see the nuanced difference based upon one's background. And that's wonderful from a diverse um, opinion perspective. I'm learning so much about that, still have so much more to learn. But if I don't understand it, I can't empathize with it. And if I can't empathize with it, I most certainly can't support it, nurture it as a leader, um, make an impact, create opportunities, blend a hand to someone who needs it. So for me, it's not complicated. Maybe I'm flawed in that way, but I've committed it starts with me and what's inside of me. And if there's something to be addressed, I own the responsibility to address that, not someone else. And that was Bill Reed. Chief Event Strategy Officer for the American Society of Hematology.
Thanks for joining us today. We'll catch you on another spin.